uh, with us in studio this morning. Dr. Jennifer Cassidy, International uh, Relations Lecturer at Oxford University. Dr. Maeve O'Rourke, Lecturer in Human Rights at NUI Galway. Uh, Daniel McConnell, Political Editor with the Irish Examiner. Kieran Hancock, Business Editor with the Irish Times. Eddie Malloy, Management Consultant. And... We also have Sheila Brady, security analyst at Star Consultancy. And obviously this week there's only one place to start and that's with that absolute tragedy. You went through it uh, in your paper, Daniel, and what and what actually happened yeah. as opposed to who said what or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I suppose the, the movements of the two from the, the cab and also the trailer and how they, they conjoined or, or came together uh, was a bit of a painstaking exercise that, that, that was done by journalists over the last few days but what we know is that the, the truck part the front part of the truck left Ireland last Sunday last, the, so this, last, day this day week. last week yeah. across the Irish Sea um, and at, in around the, um, at the same time sorry on Tuesday the, the trailer part well, when it went over where did it, it went, go it went via Hollyhead so it went Dublin Port Hollyhead and, and then across. And then across that down there yeah Um the the trailer part which held the 39 uh, uh, victims uh, arrived in Zerbrugger on Tuesday and at that stage do um, we know where we it don't came know. from and, and, and information is still very sketchy where it came okay. from what we do know is that the trailer was uh, rented from an Irish operation called GTR and it was, uh, was logged in their, their yard essentially in Monaghan on the 15th of October but that gap between October 15th and when it arrived in Zerbrugger we don't know Um it made its way from Zeebrugger over to uh, Purfield in in Essex, and it was which is l- along the Thames. Yes, along yep. the Thames, uh, and it was late <coughs> Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, that the two ca- uh, came together, and a short time later, the, the grim discovery and, was and, made. And, and how did they come together? Well, th- again, this is all subject to to the investigations. We, yeah. Like what, we, like the what we know is that the the trailer part is subject to a tracking device. That the it's it's the, the its company has a tracking device that's now obviously in the hands of the police. But what is very interesting now is to see track the movements because there was the initial um, when when Mars Robinson's name first emerged. Yeah. They said was well, did the truck actually come all the way through Ireland initially, and then that was discounted. You know, it it it, yeah. it, it was made. It became clear that it came via Zeebrugger yeah. in that way. But what is still very interesting to find out are the exact movements of both the the cab and the trailer between October 15th and when the grim discovery was made. Right. And there was kind of additional um, information thrown into the pot last night about flights and that they came through uh, China... Yeah, yeah. Like so, so what has been happening through the week is that you know we've had this, the the discovery of the text message from the Vietnamese woman at, at, to her to, to her, her mother, mother yeah. which obviously, uh, which is obviously like anyone reading that, your heart could not go out. But I suppose when the police initially made the discovery and made their initial press conference, they were saying there were thirty nine Chinese nationals. Obviously, that has broadened out. Yeah. But this is going all over the place. You've got flights from China. You have, you know, you into have, France, into France, you into have, Britain, and then back out of Britain. But then you also have other people who are, you know, behind the scenes, and we're not in a position to name these people. But their movements are also being tracked as well. You've had arrests at Dublin Port yesterday. So this is a very broad. Okay. Uh, investigation that can, and and I think as the papers are reflecting this morning, it's not just the thirty nine who lost their lives. This is much broader in terms of the numbers who were being trafficked. Okay. Well, um, um, Sheila Brady uh, joined us, uh, particularly because of her own expertise in this kind of area. Sheila, you worked for a long time as a guard. You've worked in the area of security within the EU, 
and the UN and you're now a consultant in the area of terrorism and organised uh, crime and you co-founded SAR Consultancy which conducts research and analysis in the area of security. Talk us through what it is we are witnessing or not witnessing as the case may be and you know a bit because you were in Libya uh, and a number of other places where there were people trying to migrate. Tell us about where you were. Um, so I was uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, Nigeria and Libya predominantly with the UN and the EU missions. And like you said, there's, you know, in all three cases or all three regions at least, there's a high percentage of people from within those countries or regions trying to get out and then also they are on routes for other nations to go through. I think what we're hearing about in this incident is in some way different than what we've been hearing since the kind of 2015 peak of that migration route through Libya across the sea and I think it's just indications of how complex this is. I think well, is the reason that the, that, that flow stemmed money? that the EU paid money and promised money to the Turkish and to the Greeks, more or less keep them over there, don't let them near us. So I think I agree with what you've said, but I think these two routes that we're seeing, we'll say in this incident and the the one through Libya, are not necessarily related in the context of this incident. But I agree um, since that peak in 2015 there's been quite a lot done to actually secure the border further out. There's positive and negative implications of that. Um, It's not just, you know, that it's a good thing that the numbers are dropping but we can see from IOM's figures that since 2015 year on year we're seeing a drop which is positive in one sense but actually it doesn't indicate the true story of what may be happening potentially around that border. And say uh, in terms of how people get it's by sea obviously the Mediterranean after that very surprising uh, vote in um, in the European Parliament uh, this week like who's trying to get in how are they trying to get in? So I think there's, like, without going into the real complexity of there's a number of ways people do get in. So depending on the route, it can start by as little as on foot, on car, trucks, uh, ships. You know, really any planes, any method can be used and is being used. Yeah. And it really depends on the group that are running the operation, the type of people that are moving, so if they're being smuggled or if they're being trafficked. Um, And really it comes down to how much they can afford to pay. And what is the going rate, if I may ask? It really depends. We'll say the route that we're talking about, probably in particular to this case, it can range from about 10,000 up to 40,000, you see. in the, the, the This is serious It's money. serious, serious. It's a commodity. And the mm. interesting thing, and I think people sometimes aren't, like, it's not that they don't know, it's just that they're, they're not maybe informed. It's rarely one type of criminality. So I interviewed... Uh, people that had smuggled people across the border in the Balkans, along that Balkan route, um, and it was never just one commodity, so they might have gone with people and have come back with something else, so it could be weapons, it could be drugs if it was small scale, like just somebody driving three or four people across the border, it could be coming back with elements that were like higher rates of tax or VAT within their own country, mobile phones at the time, different things like that but then it goes on to, as I say being part of huge black industry that's creating billions and millions for people. 
And with a lot of hardship and, and in this case, death. And, and where are the security forces and the police and investigators? Obviously, what we're talking about where we are today, but broadly speaking... There's been a lot of improvements and there, between Europol and Interpol, there is a lot of cooperation and that can be seen in the prosecutions that have been um, gained. But in often times, we have to actually have dead bodies for really big investigations to happen or Do to come to the... To their attention. Do you remember the, the, the cockle pickers? Yes, yeah. Somehow it was so tragic. Um, absolute slavery. Did Who got done for that? So uh, there was two prosecutions within England and then a number of years, I think it was three years later, there was uh, convictions in Belgium. And I think that is a really positive indication that it's not being just left to the country who um, where these tragedies are happening or coming to the attention. There's a lot of cooperation. But what we really need to see is convictions that uh, reflect the route that people are taking so we need them to start in the start or end but at least to be seen in their home country through the routes which is indicative that we're prosecuting all elements that are this is not a domestically run um, <coughs> issue from the countries that people are going to this is a highly strategic network that is not and I would, would go on as far to say it's not usually just criminals. Many of these countries, there has to be complicity with state authorities. You would think so. You cannot have that much money going across these borders within, you know, within the commodities that are being shipped uh, in the manner that they are being shipped without some sort of state uh, cooperation at some level. At some level. Uh, I also saw one of the, in one of the cases that was taken, the driver got done very severely but the organiser only got three years yes yeah and now I, I know from the British looking back at their cases they're very good at trying to uh, apportion the blame across everybody but it's not necessarily apportioned uh, equally or in in, um, in relation to the role people yeah. play in it or the pay that they get at it and what happens is they're trying to deter people like drivers or people like that <coughs> own the trailers and different things like yeah. that but actually this needs to be much more holistic because if if we only target these groups within one country it's highly likely that they'll just go elsewhere why is, yeah why is the UK you know, a source country for this. It's because people know these networks are so adept at getting people in and we need to show them that actually there's a, it's that, that risk um, reward for, uh, you know, right. proportionality that yeah. they assess is actually not worth it. I, I was thinking last night, but then I thought, well, you know, that's not going to happen. Like when, when people come here, um, they go up, if they come by <coughs> aeroplane or whatever they come by, they go up and they say, I'm looking for protection and I'm looking for um, harbour here. And then they're taken into the system. Now, we can talk about the system in a, in a few minutes. But if they flew to France, well, one allegedly <coughs> flew to France and then somehow got from France into the UK and then got deported from the UK back to France, would they not have had rights to seek asylum? Yes? Yeah, I think, um, I suppose maybe there's some, obviously a degree of fluency between um, people who come for economic reasons, people who end up trafficked, people who seek asylum, whether for reasons in their home country or what happens to them on the way. But from my perspective, 
when it comes to state complicity, we really need to be thinking about what drives people into the system of trafficking. It's not just about stopping traffickers. It's actually about properly organising our migration policy and laws to recognise the reality that, number one, people are going to continue to want to migrate. Um, There was a UN Development Programme report out this month called Scaling Fences, looking at the voices of irregular African migrants to Europe, finding that only 2% would have not chosen to come had they known more about the dangers en route, that migration will increase because Mm. global development has been uneven, has caused massive inequality and massive poverty, and climate change, of course, is going to contribute to more people (coughs) wanting to migrate. And European policy and law needs to broaden opportunities for people to come to work. This report finds that the European labour markets are absorbing people who come undocumented. Even in Ireland, for example, the Migrant Rights Centre of Ireland conducted research with over a thousand undocumented migrants a couple of years ago in Ireland and found that 89% of them are in employment. Even here we can see a major problem, for example, with home care. And we have an ageing population yeah. and still on our ineligible list for work permits for non-EU um, workers is home care, um, child care uh, and all kinds of care workers. Now, we know that our home care industri- industry is it, is economy in a, is being creaking. absolutely supported, though, with many people who are undocumented in Ireland. And the MRCI says, and they're right, I think, that it will be a defining social justice and equality issue for Ireland for the next 20 years. How do we actually deal with reality that migration is actually increasing? Mm-hmm. Because of what we are doing, of course, we are not just deserving of the opportunity and privilege we have in Europe. We have that because other people do not. Um, Migration is increasing, climate justice will cause it to increase. And what we really need is to actually recognise the benefit that our economies get and the duty we have to allow the migration that happens. Okay, and I mean, many people say, even though it damaged her politically, but it didn't um, destroy her. Um, that Angela Merkel may have been as wise and as self-interested as well as as generous as it appeared because an ageing population, no growth in population and, and educated people coming from Syria. Anyway, Maeve, thank you indeed for that. Uh, let me go to you, uh, Jennifer, um, international relations. Where do, How do you look at all this and uh, analyse it? I would st- I was going to say almost stand exactly beside May's point. Um, I think we even the way the story has been covered, and this is not unique to Ireland in, in any respect, this is a systemic issue globally for, for decades, issues of migration, but the way the media has, has framed it is who was driving the car at what these are important I'm not dismissing these are very important details to have but who was driving the car at what point did they leave at what border did they cross yes that's one conversation to have but actually if we're going to stop it exactly as I said we need to widen the ambit of this conversation and look at well why are are these people deciding and as you said the two percent of people even knowing the dangers that they would face would still choose to make the journey and 98% would still choose ex- ex- yeah yeah the 98% would, would still choose knowing yeah. that but yeah. how do you migrate i wonder to europe i mean we know what the rules are for canada know what the rules are for australia but there i'm not aware of the rules if i were 
Vietnamese or Chinese or Libyan and wanted to come. Yes, Kieran. There's actually a very good piece in the Sunday Times. Um, today it's, um, uh, it's, it's written by a number of their um, contributors, journalists in the UK. And it kind of goes through some of the stories of some of the Vietnamese people um, who were tragically caught up in this uh, awful situation. But it also makes the point that... Uh, Vietnamese, are, they're coming through Russia on tourist visas, essentially. Something like 43,000 Vietnamese entered Russia as tourists in 2017, and most of them kept heading west, um, as indeed was the case here. And I suppose when, when this came to the fore initially, this this um, this awful issue, uh, we thought that maybe this uh, container travelled right across Europe and, and yeah. people were, were housed on this container um, the whole way across. But it doesn't seem to have been the case at all. In fact, some of them were, um, there was one person living in Paris, there was another person living in Brussels, one person in Paris had been there since 2018 and paid £11,000 uh, for the journey um, to the UK. There was somebody else uh, living in Paris was was actually posting messages on social media about it being uh, so beautiful there. Um, that lady we were mentioning earlier who sent text messages to her parents, um, I think I saw in one of the papers she'd either been deported once or twice from the UK yeah. and she was trying once again to yeah. get back in. Yeah. And her parents had uh, had paid £30,000 yeah, um, for her to, to actually uh, <clears throat> you know, make the journey to get a new life uh, in the UK. So... There are different stories for, for different people. They're right. taking different routes. But it would seem, in terms of Vietnamese, that a popular uh, way of uh, heading for the West is to get a tourist visa, enter Russia, Russia, and then move on from there. Right. And that just is not the right way of managing our needs and mm-hmm. the reality of migration. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is the UNDP's point about how Europe needs to actually get real. Um, what we're obviously seeing is European governments prefer to just allow this um, notion to take hold that, you know, of difference and that people are trying to come here and take our jobs. No, the reality is that the economies are absorbing people. It's not right to have them using means that aren't appropriate for their protection and for the regulation of markets. Mm. Yeah, can can I come back to you and then I'll come back to to you um, as well. What was the plan? Or what would the plan be if you had somebody in the back of a truck? Does does it meet people who open the back of the truck? Or how does all that work? So in a lot of cases when they have a clear destination, so we'll say in this case it appeared to be the UK, that actually it's in a lot of cases the truck doesn't... Uh, travel far from the port and we saw that clearly in this a half an hour outside the port usually they're opened officially Um, I should preface that with saying there's kind of two types so we'll say the hard case truck is usually indicative of a, um, an organised crime element. Like a, a What strategy. do you mean by so a hard like case? In this case it was a freezer lorry that would have to be locked and bolted from the back whereas there's those trucks that have the kind of soft skin that, like a um, like a curtain that you can like pull back tarpaulin. which can indicate um, just opportunistic <clears throat> uh, people which we often hear reports if you listen to the English news or around ports man seen jumping or children yes, you know yeah, yeah. Um, which is usually opportunistic but in the case that there seems to be this organised element or at least the element that somebody has to physically open the truck um, they don't usually drive far from the port and they release them People know they're being released, so there's usually a collection, uh, you know, that will be staged around this. So this seems to, to, at least at this point, illustrate those hallmarks that it was stopped, they were to be let off. And unfortunately, in this case, um, the, the, 
they were dead, that they couldn't get off. Um, w- there doesn't seem to be a lot in the media about how the ambulance actually came out yeah. when they were there. Yeah. Um, I have my own views on that. but uh, Which are? That, which are that it, the person who opened the truck got such a fright, actually rang, for once did mm. the right thing. Well, that certainly seems yeah. to be the suggestions in the report. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know that you picked out, Eddie, uh, one um, article today. Uh, it's not directly the same, but it's not that different in some ways about um, migration across the border between Mexico and the United States. Yeah. And it seems we have huge sympathy for the Mexicans and think, you know, that Donald Trump should forget his wall and all that. And yet when it comes to our borders, we take a different view. That could be called absolute hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, they, they if you use the wall as a metaphor, yeah. uh, the vote by the Fine Gael uh, uh, MEPs yesterday was put up a wall. Uh, in effect, yeah. Uh, now you know their defence is actually, I know the defense, that the information but, but, would go out also, to everybody. But yeah. also, we're not we're not fools, Marin. Um, I think Brendan O'Connor has a very interesting piece today, and he's really saying now is not the time to complicate the borders of the UK and Ireland. And it's the issue of borders. Um, it's a cross-border gang linked to the lorry deaths. It there's the US border, the number of children dying on the border. And also, interestingly, the Cavan County Council fails to take down the signs vilifying the Quinn Industrial Holdings people. So there were posters. You would link all those... It's about borders. Mm. It's about the lawlessness that occurs on borders Mm. once you have them. And Brendan O'Connor is making the point, for God's sake, whatever we do, let's not have a border. Mm. Because yeah. um, once you have a border, you have lawlessness. Yeah. And just on the one or two other kind of elements of the, the story um, uh, and Vietnamese, I fear actually that the, the telephone call, that the people may well be Chinese and that the telephone call could be from another truck because they said there were 100 people in, in a convoy coming over. But during the week, there was a, a Chinese man based in London who's involved in, 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 in let's call it, in, in, in helping uh, deal with this thing. And he said, snakeheads in China, in a village in China. And he said, a snakehead could be a local teacher, could be anybody. And one of the things they say to the people locally is that with certain events in England, like the birth, the, the marriage of Meghan and, and Harry, uh, Harry yeah. or the birth of Archie, do you follow me? Any kinds of events. Each of these brings an amnesty for anybody who is illegally in the country. So this is your chance. And so what you get is, this goes out into the village, people say, well, God, this is the time of everyone. Yeah, let's go. Because once we're there, there'll be an amnesty. Uh, and he, he was he, he was giving those kinds of... Yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that's incentivising people to come. But I agree a lot with Maeve that, you know, this can be handled as a case that's investigated. People are charged with manslaughter. They'll go to jail or whatever happens to if this. If they're and found that's the, guilty. That, yeah, and that's the <laughs> case, that case, case sorted. Yeah. But really, the scale of this during the week, Martin Hayden, I think his name is... In, um, an Irish guy was based in London and he was head of the British anti-slavery and trafficking um, entity in Britain. He's based in Limerick now. He said the scale of it is 150 billion a year mm. and 40 million people being trafficked. That's a lot of people for, for, for and it's labor, a lot of money. Slave labour, prostitution, domestic slavery. And he went through the whole, the whole lot. So it's on a vast scale. So therefore, 
the solution, to, to use a, a very optimistic word, has to be on something like the level of the UN, the World Bank, some new international global institutions. Right. Otherwise, we're, we're fighting an uphill battle with it. Yeah, I, I was, when I was driving in today, I was kind of always trying to ask myself the so what, you know. So we have this incident, and if you look back from 2000 on, we have numerous incidents of this nature, and what happens after them? And I think, while I agree with your point, there has to be a, a global element about this. We as a nation can really do something constructive, and it's a horrible thing for, you know, some people that have to die for, for us to, to have that impetus to do something, but I think it shouldn't be left doing nothing. And I think we have to communicate with people that aren't part of our, you know, legal economy, that black economy, that grey economy, in languages that they understand, so they're native languages, but also in a way that isn't threatening, because there are people that would like to either go home, that they found that the situation is not what they expected, yeah. but they don't know how to in, in, engage with the state. There's people that would like to actually maybe um, legal, actually uh, to be able to legalise their situation here. We have talks in America over that. Why can't we have similar talks yeah. for the, those yeah, communities I here? I agree completely yeah. that it's not a security, security uh, securitised solution that we have to have this, but we, we no, as a nation... The security solution is very important. Though, no, of course. No, I don't, look, as a security expert, I think it's huge. But I also think that, that when the prosecution, which I'd like to think will happen, they're really advanced in this very quickly. This is, uh, I suppose, uh, piggybacking on the excellent engagement between police forces globally. So to just put that aside, not negating that it is, the, uh, if prosecutions are achieved, that can't be the end of it. Okay. Something else yeah. has to happen yeah. to, 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 to at least make good of such a bad yeah. situation. I, I want to come on to, to another topic fairly quickly, but before we leave that, I mean, part of Europe's... <clears throat> reaction in Libya, apart from the fact that the Americans had interfered and gone in and bombed and all Iraq war and all those dreadful things. Um, what, what we tried to do, as I understand it, was put pressure on the Libyan government to not let them out, so to speak. And they're held in camps. And I gather these camps are not very pretty. Well, when, so I was there 2014 and there was the same level of migration. We resided in a place called Tujura and as the analyst I used to get a lot of information on dead bodies coming up ashore really before they were headline news anywhere else. Um, but at that stage, a lot of people stopped in Libya, which is a natural transition. They regroup their money and pay for the next bit to get yeah, across. Yeah, they pay to get across the Sahara. Exactly, so they yeah. pay in instalments, you know, um, and, and then they get to Libya and they used to work illegally, but still within the system. Yeah. Um, and they had some level of quality of life, but when it became camps, and to be fair, there are deportations, so a lot of people now get that far and are deported back, so you don't have the same numbers. That opportunity wasn't made available to them in the past, but in many cases they try again. So they go back, they regroup, but for those that are in those camps, the conditions are harrowing. Um, and the, when we say the Libyan government, it's there's so many different what uh, is the Libyan exactly what it and I think I these are bigger questions that yeah. we have to have. The European Parliament resolution that was voted down by the two votes explicitly said in its preamble that people intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard, which of course is being funded massively by the EU, are being transferred to detention centres where they are systematically exposed to arbitrary detention in inhumane conditions and where torture and other ill treatment, including rape, as well as arbitrary killings and exploitation are 
endemic. So talk about how the EU is contributing to trafficking right. and all yeah, their types of things. Okay. Can we just say that um, we mentioned the company that owned the trailer. They said they had no idea what it was going to be used for and clearly uh, a man has been charged but he hasn't been found guilty of anything. But uh, kind of connected into that. We've, we've stories about uh, people coming here and um, Mr Ring's fury about what happened or didn't happen uh, on Ackle Island. And there was a very interesting thing in that poll today, which surprised me, but um, how many people don't want Lisa Smith brought home? This is the opposite end of the case now. And, and I presume they're, they're afraid of her. Mm. But we also heard about the radicalised medical students in Galway. Now, yeah. this is your area, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, um, I was just saying this morning that I, um, a few days ago, had a roundtable meeting with uh, Professor Louise Richardson, uh, the Irish political scientist head of Oxford University. Yeah. She's the global expert on political terrorism. So if we're taking anyone's views I th- on this, I think she's a good source uh, to turn yeah. to. And she was speaking exactly to cases of, you know, returning citizens home, be it in the UK or uh, the cases like we've seen in Ireland. And her views on it, and I would stand by it, without ultimately at the end of the day they are Irish citizens and we do not have the power nor should any government have the power to revoke citizenship and have essentially make someone stateless. Stateless, yeah. However, that is not to say someone can return home freely without you know the law the rule of law applying to them. But particularly in the cases of children, her view, and I stand by it also, is that children, Irish citizens, should be returned home if they're living in, in these conditions. And if, she, if they're not returned home, they are we're actually creating a new generation of... Uh, you know, Resentment. Children, exactly, which we've seen globally, you know, yeah. grows into you know new terrorist organisations. However, returning citizens who have potentially engaged in terrorist uh, activities or who we know have directly engaged in them, you know, that's why we have a judiciary system. And we hopefully put our trust in, and uh, hope in our own system that they return home and face the rule of law here but regarding the children. But yes, the case in uh, Galway, that that we've seen regarding the radicalisation. Yeah, just to clarify that yeah. for people. Yeah, what it so was. Um, and I believe for myself, I've just I've come to come to light with it t- today. But two, from my knowledge, that two two students, trainee doctors, and they have uh, died in the conflict in Syria. But they were radicalised and they went to to fight. But we have seen this. One of my issues with again how the narratives are framed within the media is that we're you know we see Galway the Galway University in the headlines, but actually we see this all over regional blocks, particularly in the in the EU. We see it all over the UK, and also mentioned we see the, what the, the radicalisation of students in situ. Yeah, and yeah. we do a lot of research on this in my own department regarding the radicalisation of students and actually young teenagers who are you know drawn to this through boredom, loss of identity, you know, loss of culture, and they are radicalised online and you know come over. So I don't like the tarnishing of any university or. But however, it it is something that we, and it ties back to our point that we, we said previously, 
that are not only the security issue has to be dealt with regarding human trafficking, but I think it was a you know very good point that was brought up. Our eyes need to be open to the fact that this is happening. And whether we like it or not, or people stand by this or not, we need to speak with these groups and these uh, organisations on, on their terms in order to get a, a holistic and, sense of what's happening. You know, yeah. we don't like, we might like to know what the response is, but we need to know if we're actually going to deal with this in a tangent. I mean, should we be massively surprised that universities are the sort of breeding ground for radicalisation? Always, yeah. always us. I mean, I remember when I was editor of the University Observer in UCD at the time of 9-11, the Muslim Society in UCD came under huge surveillance because of there was a group of people and it caused uproar on campus mm. and it was genuine sort of, that sort of underlying kind of fear of culture running through the student population at the time because this obviously came to light. Yeah. But it's reflected again here in what we're reading here. We saw it through Oxford and Cambridge because you're dealing with the brightest and the best. Yeah. A lot of the sort of radical She's sitting beside you. Oh, I agree with them. I'm sure some of your students are probably approached by some of the more radical regimes. Well, I mean, we were talking to John DeCarry yesterday Mm. he was talking about how he was recruited and how they recruited Mm. and how he recruited. You were going to come in there, Sheila. So I had the, and I say privilege because people don't have to speak to me. I had the privilege to speak with um, people that had fought with Islamic State or had conducted terrorist attacks in Bosnia-Herzegovina last year. And I really think there is a benefit in um, speaking with them and listening to them. Mm -hmm. And I preface that listening to them because there was many grievances that they said had led to them to make the decisions they had. Grievances that probably they aren't given the platform to discuss in in not only in Bosnian society but I can see it reflected here too and I think Can I just have the other ear in my head saying another wet liberal you know these people were medieval in their destruction of their fellow human yeah. beings Well I, I think if we think we have all the, the uh, answers as experts or you know as analysts I think more fool us I think we have to I studied under a guy David Kennedy in America and he said one of the biggest voices in the criminal justice system that was absent was criminals themselves and I think the same thing for terrorist research it's based largely unfortunately I don't have the figures but it's largely based on uh, the lack of empirical so little uh, research ever I think in any other field being based on the lack of empirical research so I would argue that actually speaking with people that are involved is key to finding um, at least some sort of uh, common ground to have these discussions on and I think this is very clear in relation to the question about um whether Lisa Smith should come back or not. And I think if we don't have these discussions, it's quite easy to have a black and white response to it. I had the opportunity to uh, speak with formers in Turkey, uh, both neo-Nazis and uh, jihadis, just there earlier in the week. They all had differing opinions on, you know, what the stance is, so there's no clear-cut reaction. Um, But I think... Where were you talking to these people? At an international symposium in Ankara. Very colourful life. I think think the reality of it is is we have to have these discussions but we also have to be mature as a nation and say uh, she or any other person and I would say any other person with Irish citizenship not just the Lisa Smith that we all see in the headlines but anybody else that uh, can be brought back should be brought back and the state should have yeah. in place the ability to cope with that in whatever sense. Yeah, and, and how do you cope with it because I was very surprised at the, at the percentage that said more or less letters she's made her bed, let her lie on it. Um, How can you know that you're not starting something that you cannot control if somebody is so 
committed and full of conviction for their for their religion. Essentially, it seems to have been for her. Uh, you don't just don't throw your religion overboard and say, oh, "I've changed my mind." No, yeah. And actually, when you speak to former, some people do, but very many people don't. But I think the first thing is that she has to be spoken to. And I would say the British have a very good model in this respect. That's not just security based. It's actually much more uh, the the state come in with supports and have the conversations. Right. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to build up that capacity that it's not seen as a traditional security uh, response okay. and that we build, build a, a more holistic team to deal with it. Okay, Eddie? No, I was just going to make a, a second one remark is about the poll. So there's a poll that yes. says 50% of the people yeah. don't agree with it. And I just hope that policy is not based on a poll. Um, God forbid. I, I, you know, public policy is determined by the will of the people. <laughs> yeah, but no, but I'm, I, that's what I'm getting at. I think there's a, there's a need for political leadership that's enlightened and that that is informed by the kinds of things these the two le- women are saying here. Yeah. Um, and all, and, otherwise, and all, it's a populist uh, solution and the politicians will avoid it. I think also the narrative that we all always should make the point that when we talk about a return <laughs> home, it's not, you know the long walk to freedom home. You know, it's a return home, as I said at the start, to face the judiciary here and the rule of law here. It's not, you know, a complete freedom uh, society. And Mm -hmm. so, of course, um, it's a a very... um, it's a very pinnacle point to make to say no one just gives up their ideology or their or their religion. Yeah. And, and that we, we should entirely recognise and that's why when our citizens are brought home in, in this case and we don't revoke citizenship, the rule of law and the judiciary should be the, the, the courts and the people to deal with it or the right. branch of government to deal with it. Okay, just before I go to the break, can I come back to you, Sheila? Um, if you take what's been happening with direct provision... And if you take the responsibilities that we have discussed, that we that we have, and that numerically we're dealing with a drop in the ocean, pardon the word, in, under the circumstances, how do you view direct provision? I, from a personal point of view, I don't... Uh, uh, I don't think it's a positive way of engaging people and integrating people into Irish society. Um, I think it's too slow, I think, for everybody concerned. Um, And I think decisions should be made faster to get people into some level of integration. And that means... Uh, 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 you know, um, giving people the sense of employment, giving people the ability to to create lives for themselves, and and the numbers, because there's a, an argument now that has come up in a number uh, of small towns saying that the proportionality of people suggested by the Department of Justice uh, to go into town or sometimes out on the edge of town. Yeah, I think we shouldn't be surprised. I think if we look at headline news, there's been a lot of the fear we spoke about today associated with you know, the Libyan crisis and and everything like that. So I think we're a product of our own making in a way Mm. um, and that we actually have to listen to those communities because with this kind of, I shouldn't say emergence, but at least kind of the populist emergence of far-right sentiment, it's very easy for communities who voice concerns to be dismissed as racist or um, supporting far-right. We have to listen to their, I sound like a real, like we have to listen to people, but we have to actually listen to the concerns and break up what's actually valid concerns of communities versus... um, 
versus or Nijak. Exactly. Nijak, There's yeah. a town in, I'm going to say it's either Trim or at Boy in Mead. Um, I spoke to a gentleman. They wanted to take families. They had a whole setup that the real community wanted to take. I think they could house like between five and ten. Doesn't sound like a huge number, but yeah. if you have willing communities that yeah. want to do Go that, they, they need to be given the opportunity to, yeah. to do that. I, think, I can't remember, was it the Pope or, or was it Dermot Martin that kind of raised the issue that if if some if if somebody offered uh, a, a one in every parish in the country, uh, you'd solve the problem in a com- yeah. completely different yeah. way. Well, I mean, I just <clears throat> like we're obviously talking about the, the specific instances of small towns around the country that have, have kind of raised up against this. I mean, I I live in Drumcondra, so my walk into work is through Dublin One, or my cycle through which has the highest population and the highest concentration of asylum seekers and kind of, you know, people who are living in direct provision, not necessarily direct provision, but certainly in emergency accommodation. Right. And yet some of these towns have barely zero. So there is an inequality that's already at play there. But yet the talk from some people that our Irish culture is under threat, when you look at the actual numbers that are in play... They're minuscule. Okay. We took a policy decision many years ago in this country to actually distribute, if you like, it's a terrible word, but to distribute these people around the country into um, various locations, not just to sort of ghettoise them in Dublin or parts of Cork, uh, maybe. I think that was the right decision, but unfortunately the implementation of it has been has been all wrong. We've yeah. got ourselves down there. And unfortunately they've been ghettoised in institutions, and that's just in no way the way to deal with the situation where we should actually be providing for people's dignity and in Ireland of all places to continue a culture of institutionalising people that we actually don't want to see on our streets, in our communities, because we prefer to portray a different sense of ourselves to ourselves or to the world. It's a continuation of a very problematic historical culture. Yeah, okay. and I think, sorry, just one point, I think we've always prided ourselves on a country of integrating communities mm-hmm. historically and we often uh, refer to that when we say well we don't have a huge radicalisation pro- uh, um, in the same numbers that we've had elsewhere and yet what we, we're doing the direct opposite now with new communities. It should be much better managed. We have a proven track record that it can happen and, and we, we've no other excuse than to actually um, do the right thing that we kind of did in the past mm-hmm. rather than what did we do in the past? You know, we integrated communities yeah. approved, and we draw on that when incidents happen. We don't have this problem because we have Muslim communities integrated or Jewish communities historically. And then we, we're breaking this now, breaking this kind of tr- past positive tradition okay. into yeah. ghettoizing. And I suppose we don't want to bring our problematic past into another area. Exactly. So we've stopped and we've apologised for institutionalising certain groups mm. and now we're doing it all over again. <laughs> okay, listen, uh, thank you very much, Sheila. I know you're leaving us now. Uh, Sheila Brady, Security Analyst at SAR Consultancy, isn't it? Okay. Thank you very, very much indeed. And we'll be back after this. That was great. The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Now, just uh, as we come up to 12, uh, you were talking about apologies. Um, And there's quite a lot of coverage today on the Taoiseach's apology uh, to the women in the Dáil. Eddie, do apologies matter? Uh, They do, Uh, but there has to be a lot more than apologies. Uh, Because you're part of the implementation of Sloan to Care, aren't you? Yes, yes, yes. It's called the Implementation Advisory Council, it's a big word. Um, But but, but if you look at the Taoiseach's apology, there's a number of problems I have with it. First of all, it sweeps up management 
leadership, clinical governance, the whole lot of people are swept up in that uh, uh, denunciation of what happened. When many of these people behaved impeccably, they behaved correctly throughout this. So that kind of blanket thing that were a lot of you guys were, were guilty on this. And secondly, the, the, the fact that once you generalise and uh, make everybody guilty to the thing, nobody's guilty, there's no accountability. Mm. And I think that that same apology, if you were to use it, and I would, I would advise against it, could be used for dozens of cases in the HSE. If you look at the report on the death of children in uh, Port Leisha, for example, you could have a large apology just like last week in the Doyle, which would indict everybody, but nobody at the end of the day actually any consequences. Yeah. That, that is the problem I have. Okay. Uh, you have to rely on these big, big, big blanket uh, apologies, which are... Uh, yeah, and we've had quite a few of them. Uh, Maeve O'Rourke, now you um, humanises your area, uh, you're, you're a lawyer, and you've dealt with the Magdalens. Yes. Now, I'd send the same question uh, as I posed to Eddie. Do apologies matter? I think they're really important, very initial steps, but it's what happens after the apology that actually matters to people. So apologies are political but the actual problems arise out of structures that, of course, as Eddie says, comprise uncountable, you know, people and institutional ways of doing things, laws. Um, we see a very problematic situation now, actually, in relation to the records of the industrial and reformatory schools. Um, Minister for Education, Joe McHugh, has um, put down for a dull committee stage on the 5th of November, so wants to push through the retention of records bill. Now, this relates to um, the apology of Bertie O'Hearn in 1999 for the terrible endemic wrongs that were done in those schools. We saw um, a good inquiry a redress scheme, but now um, this bill that is being pushed through would seal for at least 75 years every single document in the archives of the three relevant bodies. Which is and terrifying, but I wonder if you gave your evidence in confidence. You want it back. So this legislation will not entitle back. anybody to their own transcript back, to their own personal files back. The um, Family members of children who may still be in unmarked graves who died in institutions, those records back to them. All of the records that otherwise would be in the National Archives that are departmental records, it seems, because they made their way into the archives of these bodies won't see the light of day for another 75 years. That is, why is that? Well, I mean, John, we, we, my, my colleague, Conal O'Farrida, who's kind of led the way journalistically in relation to this, uh, has beaten the drum quite heavily. And But Joe McHugh's response is... People gave their evidence on the basis that their evidence would be destroyed. But however, there's a complete, there's a compelling public interest argument. I mean, 75 years is ridiculous. Now, there is a review after 25 years, but there's no guarantee what way that review but would But did go. they know that it would be destroyed? Well, I mean, th that's the did argument. Did they know they wouldn't get no, a copy I'm, of I'm it? I'm only just saying what, like, I mean, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, and it sets a very Jennifer? dangerous precedent. Well, just regarding the... Um the apology itself, you know, as, as, as Eddie rightfully said, there's, the, there's a famous quote by Hannah Arnant, the, the political philosopher who covered, um, and I'm not making correlation here with the Nuremberg Tribunals, but yeah, yeah. You know, her fa at, at all, just to say, uh, yeah. but her famous quote regarding um, guilt is that, you know, in issues of collective guilt, if all admit 
guilt, none are guilty. So as Eddie rightfully said, if you if you make a sweeping statement such as this, it doesn't hang, and you don't have a lack of accountability, has a huge issue. And I myself, when I worked for the EU Diplomatic Service, covered the Khmer Rouge tribunals, which is a hybrid tribunal between uh, the UN and Cambodia regarding the genocide that happened in, in Cambodia and there was no apology there and that had a huge impact f for the people but we saw the the power of the apology in the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa. Yeah but not all South Africans would agree with not that. Not all and so yeah that which leads me to oh, sorry, <laughs> pre yeah. preempting my points which is sorry. Very, no no it's perfect which, which leads me to the one of my the final points is that you know it's quite it's good it's very privileged of us to be able to sit and discuss you know how powerful is the apology but actually the people that we should be assessing the apology are, are, are the victims or the, the people who need the apology and deserve the apology and it's actually their opinion and their lens in which we should mm. be viewing right. the power of the apology and of course conversations like this are imperative and they're and they're you know substantial for the public discourse but ultimately it's those who are right as you rightfully said in south africa or in cambodia or in cases like this it's 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 the victims or those most affected by what has happened yeah they're the people we should be looking to for the answers on whether the apology was effective or yeah. not and brenda power's writing today i see you yeah. have that yeah. article yeah. More or less saying that if you keep saying sorry, it becomes meaningless. Yeah. So the, 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 well, the power of the discourse, the power of the word, particularly today, and, and she mentions online, uh, the online media and, the, and the, the pervasiveness of the apology and that it loses, it loses its power. Right. And so I think it ties back right. again to the central point of the power of the apology and also the symbolic nature of TDs not, not turning up. Not so apologies can up. be powerful, but yeah. if done in the correct Actually, manner. Actually, you wonder sometimes what they have between their ears in terms of empathy yeah. or Just respect for and respect. respect. I think it's a key word for yeah. regarding, you know, anything, a number, and I know we'll probably get to it, but regarding issues of, you know, the, the vote gauge or yes. the apology. Yes. It's respect for the citizens. Not everyone has their working day-to-day -day lives and they don't have... All, they don't have all the time to be engaging in politics and the luxury yeah. that I myself do because it's my job to. But they do expect their, their elected officials have the respect to turn up to votes or to turn up for... Uh, for, 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 for mm. Last word to you, Kieran, on this before we go... Well, I, I thought here. it was interesting. There were 28, was it 28 TDs uh, in, in the mm. doll for yeah. um, for that apology and there were something like 80 women um, waiting in the visitor's gallery yeah. um, mm. for the apology. I, I thought that showed a bit of a lack of respect. Mm -hmm. But but yet the doll was crammed filled for the apologies from the four Fianna Fallers, you know, when they were apologising and talking about themselves. Like mm. There was this craven sort of contrast yeah. between <laughs> this wrong done to the women, you know, yeah, in relation to cervical check. And, and like, I mean, the vid And a blood sport, basically, yeah. about something that's yeah. sloppy and careless, but is mm. not anything Any, like what those yeah. mm -hmm. uh, women yeah. and families went through. Anyway, listen, I have to go to a break and we'll be back with you after the midday news. And thank you very much indeed. Now, uh, news of job losses, never good experience but this week we got two such announcements in quick succession Novartis in Cork is <coughs> set to close as is Molex in Shannon with the loss of over 800 jobs the news was described as a bad day for Munster <coughs> uh, by the Minister for Business Heather Humphreys well I'm joined from Clare now by two 
by Mike Phillips, who works in Molex in Shannon, and by Peter O'Connell, who is editor of the Clare Champion. And I'm going to start with you, if I may, Mike. Uh, tell me a bit about yourself. You're from Shannon. How long have you been working there? What do you do, etc.? Hey, Marion. How are um, you? Yes, I, I'm, I'm living in Shannon all my life. Uh, my, my parents came to Shannon in uh, the late 60s. And uh, I'm working in Molex 30 years. I work in the electroplating department there. For What's that? Years. Electroplating, it's, uh, it's putting metal onto other metals with uh, electricity and chemistry. So very sciencey. All right. But, uh, it, it's, it's not a very uh, common, common kind of uh, job that's done is very specialised uh, so most people wouldn't really understand the electroplating but probably if you looked into your mobile phone or, or on a SIM card and you'd see gold on it well that's put there by electroplating Okay uh, and tell me in terms of the company and your experience of working there and, and the rest of the workers is there anger fear you know well there, it, you know, Molex was a super company to work for. I mean, uh, the benefits in there, the way they treated their employees was generally excellent. And and, and there was a company, you know, I'm working most of my life in there and would never have considered working anywhere else because most people that would have worked there would have been quite happy working there. And working um, conditions were good? Working conditions were brilliant. You know, they're a rural company. Uh, you know, most people... Uh, that, that are there as long as me or, or, or even any length of time are generally happy there. They, they give very good benefits that you wouldn't get in a lot of other companies and generally um, treat the employees with respect and, you know, a lot of integrity in the company. So, you know, there's very little bad you could say about the company in the way that it treated its employees. Yeah, because you had a problem with your leg last year. <coughs> No, it wasn't last year. Oh, sorry. I, I was talking to a lady, or they were talking, I just said, I remember one time I had a, a hurling injury and I was out for six weeks. And, you know, when you're out sick from work, you know, you get your full pay in Molex. So I was just giving, you know, just giving that as an example of, you know, you for somebody else working, uh, you know, uh, like a, a brother of mine, for example, you know, he works for himself. You know, if he had that operation that I had and his leg, well, he wouldn't get paid for those six weeks that he was out of work. That's right. You know, whereas yeah. I, I didn't have those worries to worry about in working in a company like Molex. So tell me the, the, the story. They came here uh, 30 years ago. The company was owned by an American married to an <coughs> Irish woman. Is that right? Yeah, so the story, um, like, you know, that Molex is, I suppose, um, a company that's rode through a lot of storms over the years and, and recessions. But uh, it was owned by a, a family called the Cravehill Brothers. So their father started out in the 1950s. And uh, so one of their sons met a woman uh, there in <coughs> Chicago. I believe she was a nurse and he was in hospital. And uh, they ended up getting married. And um, she was from Tralee, I believe, in County Kerry. So there was always that Irish connection there. And right. They opened up Mo uh, the first company they opened up outside of Ireland was in Molex and Shannon. So there was always that Irish connection, and the, and that you know that, that um, owner Fred Cribel was his name. You know they they did a lot uh, over the years to try and make Molex successful and profitable so they could survive. And then we had um, a CEO of the company, Liam McCarthy. He started his career working in Molex and Shannon and worked his way up to the very top of the company in America. 
and then we had another CEO who has, you know, like he he um, he did his best for Ireland as well, I suppose, because through the Cray Belt. So they they both retired last year. So we, Molex, uh, the Cray Belt children, none of them wants to take over the company, and uh, so they kind of were forced to sell the company to nice. a huge company called Coke Industries. And uh, so kind of that Irish connection then was gone and then it became purely business decisions. Right. And and profitability hasn't been great. Uh, There are 11,000 people living in Shannon. 500 are employed uh, by the company. And you have three brothers. Well, you're one of three brothers, I should say, working there. And it's always scary when you get uh, very good direct foreign investment and you get two members of the one family, like a husband or wife. Will you go elsewhere to look for work? Well, well, I mean, I'm I'm just turning 50 very soon. So, I mean, uh, I'm sure uh, for somebody like me that the package will be okay. But it's not a package that allows you to retire at 50 years of age. So uh, I obviously will try to get uh, some work somewhere else. I mean, what the future holds for me, I don't know. I mean, it does play in my mind. What will I be doing in a few years' time? I'm optimistic about it, but, um, you know, you're, you're facing into the unknown. Like, uh, for for my kind of job skills, uh, there there would be practically zero demand uh, for electroplating in Ireland. So I wouldn't be... Right. optimistic about those chances but I'm optimistic that uh, I can adapt to something else. Right. Um, a couple of things you said that Nokia which at one stage dominated mm. the world was a big client of yours yeah. and uh, with the fall of Nokia and the rise of iPhone I presume the rules changed but that this work is really done elsewhere now that it's done in China yeah. Philippines yeah, well, like, Nokia was an example I used because you know, and, and it's, uh, if you consider, like, uh, Nokia was our biggest customer by far. Most of our revenue was coming through Nokia. And then the, uh, Apple invented the smartphone, and pretty much, you know, most people know yeah. that nobody buys a Nokia phone anymore. So we were all very busy working for Nokia, and then pretty quickly uh, it all stopped. And we were very vulnerable, but it just goes to show, you know, that the Craig Hill family at the time, yeah. they did everything possible to keep us going through that tough time, and reinvent ourselves with new products and, and things like that. Okay, just before I go to Pete O'Connell, did you see this coming down the track? No, uh, we were. We all knew that uh, things weren't going well and that there was going to be big changes. And uh, it was only announced by the, the CEO of the company and a mail to everybody uh, about a week ago. And... Uh, we, we, you know, like this, and it's not only Molex in Ireland, but there'll be other other plants right. affected, um, you know, to get more profitable, as simple as that. Okay. So we, we were looking at the recent investment in the company, and there was, you know, plenty of money being spent on the best technology and all those things like that. We, we assumed that there was a future, but we, there was a kind of a new direction being taken more towards medical parts. And so we assumed that the factory was safe, but that there might be, you know, maybe 100 to 200 right. um, redundancies. But everybody was just absolutely shocked when the announcement came. Yeah. Peter O'Connell, uh, editor of the Clare Champion, uh, you say that the this will remove the equivalent of 24 million from the local economy. That's quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a very significant figure, Marion. There's, there's no question about that. Um, as you refer to the 500 direct employees who are losing their job, it, it, there's a knock-on effect there as well. There are, you know, a number of uh, small, much smaller companies who deal with um, Molex who 
you know, future is in some doubt as well, you know, uh, in terms of maybe supplying services or making a particular product that, that Molex uh, don't make themselves. And then you have, you know, smaller, even smaller businesses than maybe around Shannon, uh, shops, uh, the retail sector, restaurants, um, all of whom would probably feel the pinch as well. Obviously, 500 jobs is, is, is very, very significant, but there is, um, I suppose, a multiplier effect as well, you know. Yeah. Um, so when you, when, you, when you take, when you add in, uh, the, the, I suppose, the salaries of the employees into, um, you know, the, the fact that other smaller businesses will, will definitely feel some impact as well, it probably has even a, a broader impact. Right. Um, I was reading that uh, Minister Humphreys was saying, she's sounding very upbeat, uh, despite obviously offering her sympathies, but she said that she met representatives of IDA, Enterprise Ireland, the Shannon Group, the Department of Social Protection and third-level colleges mm. to discuss the impact and a plan would be put in place. Yeah, there's two things about that, Marion. I mean, that meeting took place the day after it was announced that Molex were was closing. And, you know, with all due respect to Minister Humphreys and her department, you would imagine that they should be better informed um, as to the possibility of uh, nationally, when you include uh, Novartis and Cork, um, that there was 800 jobs um, at risk. Uh, you would hope that, that our political representatives would, would be... Um, more aware of what's happening on the ground. Um, as, as Mike said, it was a massive shock um, in, in terms of Molex, but, but definitely within Molex uh, there, there was an awareness that bad news was coming, not to the extent um, that, that, it, that it did, but, yeah, but, but, but that something was going down. Kieran, yeah. can I come to you on this? Yeah, it seems, I think another factor at play here in, in terms of Molex um, as a group is that it seems to be being caught in the crosshairs of the US-China uh, trade war um, that's going on. So Donald Trump's uh, fingerprints um, somewhat uh, on this, but right. um, as has been said, uh, you know, clearly the, the products they're in at the minute, um, it seems they have a, a limited uh, lifespan going forward. The other thing is, uh, it was mentioned about the Creville family <coughs> who previously owned it. Um, just to say, they're still invested in Ireland. Um, they um, they're the people behind uh, Ballyfin, the five star hotel oh, in County Leash. They? Yeah. they are, yeah. And they spent. I gather it's like about five going on seven stars. Yeah, and they spent. Well, we don't know precisely how much they spent refurbishing it, but somewhere between fifty and hundred million euro. Um, so they still are uh, actively involved in Ireland, investing in that. Um, right. You know, hopefully. Uh, the timing of these two announcements is obviously very unfortunate, devastating for the region, uh, potentially. But hopefully uh, it's not a portent of things to come in terms of uh, right. Ireland and the economy and foreign direct investment. Okay. And it should should also be said um, that in the past we saw digital in Galway and uh, when digital pulled out and there was oh, a lot there was, of yeah, and so forth. And all yeah, that. but actually a lot of people went on to do other things. There were lots of spin-offs or spin-outs from digital uh, ultimately that were good. in the long term. And if you look at GPA as well, which was down in Shannon, Tony Ryan yeah. uh, formed GPA. He tried to take a public, it didn't work. Uh, the company almost collapsed. It was eventually taken over by General Electric. But GPA, that whole GPA project down there, uh, ultimately spanned a, a, a massive aircraft leasing well, sector in Ireland, which one is a world leader. We're still in the world, <clears throat> aren't yeah, we, in, yeah. in aircraft leasing? That all came from Tony Ryan. Eddie Malloy. Uh, IDA companies, Marion, um, are exceedingly good, stimulated by the IDA, not just to get here and make the widgets there to make but actually progressively move what they call up the value chain. And that means each, every product they're involved in, everything they're making, and the factory equipment they have to make it, have a life cycle. 
It peaks, as you heard in this story, do you follow me, at a time we were buoyant, we were selling to Nokia and yeah. we were in, in, in Clover. But actually, it's up really to the local management. You heard the phrase there, we, we knew something was going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So really, the challenge for the management of a local multinational company is to be thinking far ahead all the time and to get a sense of what's coming down and then to do their best to stay ahead of the curve. As I so understand the practice within the IDA, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that, OK, they're very good at going fishing and reeling yeah. people in, and but that then they keep really close contact with them. They do, yeah. The phrase that's used in the IDA is tent-pegging the company. Right. Anchoring the company, making it sticky. They're the various phrases they use. And if you take, I mean, there are many examples in Ireland. There are 1,500 people making, com uh, assembling computers in Apple in Cork, for example. And they used to call it stuffing boxes. It's a relatively manual, labour-intensive thing. But there's more than that number there now in software engineering and higher requiring higher up education, the up the food chain. IBM used to have people uh, selling and fixing uh, uh, machines, business machines, but there's thousands of them out there involving in all kinds of high-tech. And that is the record of the multinational companies in Ireland generally. And I just make this distinction between Novartis and um, uh, Molex. Novartis is a, a pharmaceutical company and it's in a cluster. Ring a skiddy, cork, they're... they're they're pharma-central. Pharma-central. And those people, I would suspect, will have no difficulty getting jobs because there's a shortage of people with the knowledge and the expertise. I mean, the, the, I don't know who's running them, but there are courses called crossover courses where you might have been good at one thing, but you can go and learn how to oh, work. Oh, that's fantastic. Learn how to work in a pharma a factory. With the What I'm learning about Molex, for instance, electroplating, that goes to China. That's all that kind of... Uh, factory type uh, work. Well, that's what heading. Mike said himself. That's what Mike is saying. Yeah. So, really, I would be less optimistic about um, the, for the people in uh, Shannon than I would be for Novartis because of, it sounds to me like they were involved in an end game technology, one that's life cycle had run out. Mm. The factory was no longer really uh, uh, fitted for the next generation of products. Yeah, and so. Uh, that, that's what I would say. Right, I mean, yeah. Just looking at, I suppose, the politics of all of this, I mean, Heather Humphreys, while she travelled down to... She cancelled her events on Tuesday or Wednesday and went down to Shannon. I mean, she came... Uh, she revealed on that radio interview that morning, it was either Morning Ireland or on Sean O'Rourke, that, you know, this was a big shock, didn't see it coming. And, like, that goes... That drives me mad because there's a supposedly early detection kind of warnings within oh, yeah. the system. And where were they? Novartis have been at this review for over a year and Ring of Skitty apparently was initially not seen as part of that review but also but clearly has been on the on the kind of radar for quite a while yeah not a peak of it right. that's really concerning from a government that's supposed to be on top of things right um and it has kind of hallmarks of the dell incident 10 years ago you know when irish people were sent out to poland to train the people that were going to replace their jobs like um but you know and leo Varadkar's kind of sort of mealy mouth response in the doll saying oh sometimes these companies don't give you advance warning of their plans but if you're at the ida you're the department of business this is your job to know about these things ireland is a small country you know the grapevine you should hear it like and particularly if in the molex circumstance that this you know something was kind of on the yeah. on the radar that surprises me an awful lot and kind of goes to show that how surprised. do you react to that peter Absolutely, completely agree. I mean, it's the job of the Minister for Business and uh, her department, her doing a minister, to be aware of 
what's happening on the ground, you know, and in this in this instance, they didn't do their job. I mean, it might sound a bit harsh, but that's that that's just the, the reality of the situation. You'd hope that they would, you know, be much better informed and uh, be able to uh, intervene before before the decision is made. Not saying that they'd be able to get the decision overturned, but at least if you know in advance that there's, uh, there's you know very bad news um, coming down the track, coming down the tracks, you might be able to have. have you know, exert some influence and it just didn't happen this time. There's no point in having a, a meeting with, um, you know, several stakeholders the morning after, the day before. OK, Eddie, you want to... Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't agree that the Minister should know about what's happening in Molex. I think that the, uh, the management... The department should not. The, the, the management, first of all, on the ground, as, to, as one of your other speakers said, they could see what was in the tea leaves. They could see what was happening and unfolding probably for some time. And he said how the, the family did their very best to keep it going. Yeah. And all, to me, my antennae there are, this has been in the, in the tea leaves for quite a long time. So first of all, the management would. Also, the IDA have a very good national network. I would be very surprised if the IDA did not have that. So why was, in, why was in, the in so, so, so So the minister going down is a political act. Yeah. That's what it is. But yeah. why was she so shocked then, Eddie? I mean, if, look, I mean, she has officials. Well, well, she, the she... IDA wouldn't be telling the minister what the, the status of what are, you know, thousands of companies in Ireland are. They would be tracking them and so on. But they wouldn't be informing the minister. You better. But this is eight hundred job losses in the space of twenty four hours. Like, I mean, yeah, surely yeah, as a minister, you kind of you'd want to. Like, if you're a minister and you've an advisor and a team around you, you'd want to be known because there is a political fallout from it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let me go back to you, Mike. You took the view that there was actually. No hope for the company. Well, um, when I say no hope, like the decision is made and there's no going back from it. And and, like I would like to comment that, um, you know, over the last number of years, uh, when you say about local management, the amount of work and the amount of presentations all of us have made to uh, potential customers and current customers, trying to listen to the voice of the customer, uh, you know, trying to get new products in. And we did get new products in and, and lots of them. You just can't. You just couldn't make enough revenue uh, because, at the end of the day, our customer base is over in Asia. And if you're making something on this side of the world to send to somewhere in Asia, you know they can do it there just as easily. And, and you, you far, know, think about cheaper. It, so far, far cheaper. Far cheaper. Like if you think of it, like you know, Molex. I don't know what what it'll cost them to to close the factory down, but I'd imagine you know, thirty five, forty million to close a factory down. So if someone's, you know, if a company's uh, going to spend that type of money to close a place, like, what does it take to keep it open? Right. You know, like, yeah, the other thing is monster you were... factories over there and, you know, maybe 8,000 people working in one factory and it's running 24-7. You know, it's an efficient process and, you know, where we've all done a huge amount of work in continuous improvements over the years and projects and investment in, in better technology and that you you just couldn't, you know, feed the, the corporate yeah. monster, I suppose. Yeah, and you were saying there's one of the two plants in China, monthly revenue of 55 million. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, right. and our, ours is eight to nine. Last word, Kieran, on this. Well, unfortunately, there's an economic reality to all of this, isn't there? And there are different uh, regulations and standards apply in countries like um, China, uh, etc., that don't uh, don't necessarily apply here. So the economics uh, come into play with it all. And unfortunately, uh, Molex no, is a and if you're in, in that neck of the world, you know, what would be regarded as an exploitative, disgraceful income here, you could be sitting high on the hog, you know what I mean? In the sense that 10,000 a year and you'd be, like, right up there. So when they get paid less, it does. It still gives them a chance at a half-decent job, whereas nobody in this country would even imagine 
um, working for those kind of low levels. I don't think that is connected into all our psyches. No, but it's a bit of a zero-sum game, I think, in, in all of this, because, you know, the, the jobs go to China and then China um, starts to become a high-cost location, relatively oh, yeah. speaking. Yeah. Um, so then they move somewhere else, you know, maybe to go to Vietnam or the Philippines or some, mm-hmm. somewhere else, and then they move somewhere else, uh, etc. So Actually, somebody was, was telling me who was involved in buying for one of the big um, companies that they used to go to, to or ordering, I should say, used to go to China, but the wages started going up in China, so they hop-skipped and jumped into Vietnam. That's right, yeah. And actually, now that we're on the sustainability um, yeah. uh, loop, if you like, because of climate change, a lot of the um, textile manufacturers that have outsourced to uh, parts of China and, and elsewhere, and they might have been looking at Africa maybe as their next uh, stepping off point, there's been, you know, there's starting to be a backlash against that kind of uh, that kind of thing happening. And I, I think a lot of people, uh, some of the, they're niche players maybe in the textile market and they're making brands that are uh, with big price tags, but they're starting to bring some of that back to Europe. Uh, right, Jennifer. Um, well, just speaking, speaking on that point and to a broader point in general, not only are countries who would have been investing in China and the wages going up and saying we're yeah. going to invest elsewhere, China as an economic power is also doing that themselves. And we're seeing that actually China's with its economic investment, you could actually reconceptualize it to say it's <coughs> a new form of economic colonization. And so when we talk about the US-China trade war, Actually, and and the decline of the U.S. hegemon of the U.S. as the global um, yeah. global force. Actually, if you look at it and you kind of reconceptualize or you rethink of what actually is the global force in the world, if you look at in economic terms, China with its investment yeah. because it's actually getting even increasingly more expensive in its own nation investment in Africa, um, India, and it has investment ports all around uh, yeah. India shores. So it's actually the creation of power. Well, in that I sense understand it's a matter of time and not a very long time before China will take over well, G- from... GDP-wise, yeah, we, we, we've already seen that happen and it's, the prediction is that we're actually entering by Joseph Nye, who's a scholar in, in Harvard, not only a scholar, he's the top diplomatic scholar in the world. He has predicted that we're entering a new Cold War, but it's the economic Cold War between the US and China. And I would, I would st- see oh, that theory and, and, and see, see how that take us... I'll down to your hats. What is ahead of us? Everything oh, seems yeah, to be well, changing yeah. in such a way. Anyway, listen, I'm going to take a break and we will then go to Brexit. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Now, I should say, with us in studio uh, this morning still, Eddie Malloy, Kieran Hancock, uh, Daniel McConnell, Ma- Dr Maeve O'Rourke and Dr Jennifer K- uh, Kennedy. And by the way, I just don't think I said thank you. Uh, so to make sure my manners are in order, thanks to Mike Phillips and Peter O'Connell uh, for joining us on the phone. Now, a text came in to say when we were talking about apologies, to say an apology is one thing. Action to repair damage is more important. But in fairness, Leo Varadkar did appear heartfelt. And I think that's the truth, actually. That's fair enough. Pardon? That's fair enough. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Now we go Brexiting, Brexiting, Brexiting. Um, Since you're across the water, I will go to get your... For my sins, yeah. Your (laughs) esteemed take on... What's going on and how the papers are covering it? Oh, what is going on? And I always try and make the caveat now that 
you know, I'm somewhat confused on it. And I don't say that as if, oh, if I'm confused. But, you know, it's my job not to be confused. Yeah. And it's my job to, you know, understand the, the, the situation. But I think actually, you know, there's a famous phrase in politics, if you can't convince them, confuse them. And I think that's really what we're seeing at the moment. And that confusion which is happening, not only in the media, but with political commentators, with academics, the impact for the confusion on citizens is that if people don't un understand what is happening, and, and I made the point earlier that, that there is no judgment that people have working lives like up in the morning, working at, looking after the families. Yeah. They expect their politicians, you know, to, the elected politicians, not always to fall in line with what they voted for, but to, you know, act in a trust and trustworthy, incredible manner. But if they don't understand what's happening to an extent... People feel, and I've spoken to a lot of citizens about this, you know, they don't have, feel they have the confidence to speak on the issue or they don't feel they have the knowledge. And what does that do? What's the implication for that? Is that it once again silences the people again and what you get is just a hardening of the political power. So that's just one, I could go down a rabbit hole with that, but I'll leave that for the moment that it, you know, the silencing of the people. But regarding what exactly is happening, tomorrow is going to be a pivotal day whether we see the general election calls uh, in in um, uh, Parliament, and I, and I think we will. Do you? Uh, yes. Yeah, because so, of the SNP and the Lib Dems? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, well, they'll, they'll have to agree to it. And where I see Boris Johnson and, and, and his tactics, and the only thing... I, I truly believe when, when we look at Boris Johnson, we need to remember that he has made a career, if you look at the director of his career, he's made a career about... Uh, about knowing what to say, when to say it, and who to say it to, and in what room to say it in. And it's always in the position of gaining power. He's the true Machiavellian prince. He is, power is his ultimate goal. We know he did his dissertation, uh, Oxford, I'm saying this, you know, having done all my studies there and lecturing there, but has a lot to answer for, you know, regarding the elected, uh, current elected officials uh, at the moment. But he did his dissertation on Winston Churchill. Uh, he, want, he said to his mother, that he wanted to be king when he was younger and his yes. mom informed him that he actually wasn't of the bloodline of, of the of the royals. Yeah. So what's next in line? Well, Prime Minister. So power is his ultimate goal, so that's why but I think... But don't you want small children to reach for the stars? You yes, know? but there's, there's, there's reaching for stars and I think it's on a spectrum, there's a morality with that. And if you're the Machiavellian, which is... you know, Mac, Mac, Machiavelli says in, in The Prince... Power at all costs. If mm. you need to cry to gain power, you cry. If you need to murder, that's a quite extreme taking a U-turn. But if you need to murder, you do, do yeah, that. Yeah, but we won't say that. No, in but the you, but it's, it's it, not. Yeah, as yeah. A, that's quite that escalated yeah. quite quickly on my behalf. Yeah. But it's from Machiavelli's Prince, the literature on political power, and it's in the sense of if he needs to call a general election in order to achieve his motives and stay in power. But that's what I he's going for. He exactly. wants a mandate. Like, yes. I mean, this, this parliament can do little or no more. But I mean, it has been gridlocked by Brexit. They can do. And but yet, despite the chaos around him, Dominic Cummings, his own inner team, he still has a clear lead on the Labour Party. He's still most likely to be Prime Minister next time round. He's still in a position to limit the power of the Brexit Party, given the way he's managed to kind of get the deal to this and point. And as Pat Roberts was writing about today, he's still keeping his eye on Nigel, Nigel Farage. Yeah, yeah, and I... But I, they're panicked by Farage. Like, they're panicked, even though... He, I've always been of the view, given the, the, the mechanism of the first-past-the-post system, the Brexit Party would be very limited in what they would achieve. Mm -hmm. But yes, they're panicked by him because they need to keep the right flank of the Tory party in line as well. But it's, you know, it's disturbing that, you know, he, we're saying that his his last mechanism or his last mode, mode of 
you know, institutional power is to call a general election. But I just don't understand why the argument is still being taken forth that we the, the uh, people's vote can't be given. Because Parliament, after three years, you know, you can say they have absolutely tried everything. You know, this has drained taking Ireland's viewpoint for the example and of course Ireland being part of the EU we didn't ask for Brexit, we didn't ask for the border and we and we didn't ask for the uh, the Brexit bill, none of the, uh, the backstop none of this we asked for yet we have taken on, it's tr taken all of our resources, our diplomatic agenda, our diplomatic agenda setting when we should have been focused on the housing crisis, the job law all the issues we've discussed, discussed today and so I have a huge huge problem with the fact that we're wasting while I don't want to see a no deal of course there are no winners in a no deal Brexit this has to end some point and I don't know why all of Parliament can't agree that they can all say we tried absolutely every avenue because there are the others are working in their self-interest too exactly let, yeah. let us put it back to the yeah. people I mean but, but, I mean your dissertation on on Boris Johnson is what but well, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know oh, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all uh, uh, can one one of the things that um, you had read, Karen, was uh, Colin McCarthy's article, which, as I've said at the break, he rather irritatingly brings facts. He has a way things. of cutting to the chase uh, in terms of uh, deconstructing um, certain things, and uh, in this case, Boris uh, has a bit of a sop uh, to the north, I suppose. He uh, he talked about building a bridge from Scotland to Northern Ireland. And he also talked about a high high speed rail link uh, from Dublin to uh, Belfast. And in his column in the Sunday Independent today, uh, Colin McCarthy said these are both uh, mad ideas, ridic ridiculous ideas. He says a bridge from Scotland to Northern Ireland is an insane proposal, not because it's technically unfeasible, but because it could cost large multiples of the initial estimate. And he makes the point that there's no design, there's no, you yeah. know, they haven't gone into any of the logistics. Who knows what it'll be? Uh, uh, but I gathered Johnson pulled a figure <coughs> of 15, 15 billion. billion out of the air. Now but there's, it, I'm so used to billions that doesn't sound like a lot it doesn't sound like an awful lot but it, it will oh. probably end up being a lot more and he talks about the high speed uh, rail line from um, Dublin to Belfast and saying that you know you could be talking somewhere in the region of uh, 50 billion euro if you're to look at the use the HS2 model uh, of the high speed rail line from London to Manchester as, as kind of a yardstick and he, he says that equals about 25 national children's hospitals or 50 <laughs> Bertie Bowls and he makes the point <laughs> that only about 80 passengers on each there. train departing north from Dublin to Belfast at the minute um, actually stay aboard all the way to Belfast. Yeah. So it's, and it's he a also pointed proposal. out how much traffic there is between Glasgow and Ireland and there's not a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You wanted to come in there and no, I, no, you don't need I, to I, I, I think it's, it was very interesting to note and I use interesting um, in a quite a disturbing way last Saturday when it was potentially they were going to vote on, on the Brexit bill so you know sitting the House of Commons was sitting for the first time since the Falklands War and said they ended up voting on the Letwin Amendment but I have never heard in three years and I've been glued to this I don't know I'm drowning in Brexit but I've never heard a more substantive and detailed discussion on Ireland Northern Ireland and the peace process than I have in the House of Commons and while I of course welcome this and in no way wish to dismiss it in any manner this was being this was the conversation was being had three hours before a potential vote on the future that would affect the implication of future economic social and political and this should have been having had three, three years. years before mm -hmm. and i've ne never heard of and if you look at how 
and I'll, fin- I'll wrap up with this point on this, but if you look at how it's disturbing how Conservative MPs have used Ireland and Northern Ireland and the peace process, and we saw with um, Owen, uh, Owen Patterson, you know, using the words of Michael Collins yes, in his speech, yeah. the, the, the instruments that they're using, they're using the peace process now in order to get their deal across and it's just you know if that's not an obvious and a see-through mechanism yeah. just in a pursuit of power yeah. you know whatever they can use and at the moment they know that's what they can use but three years ago where was that conversation right. well, I was, it was uh, never had yeah exactly it. really interested to see during the week just a joint statement by the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission and the Northern Irish um, equivalent through the Good Friday Agreement, they have a joint committee and they're doing absolutely crucial work mm-hmm. just keeping on the issue of the equivalency of rights mm-hmm. for people in Northern Ireland yeah, that citizens. they can choose, of course, to either identify as Irish or British or both. And what that will actually mean in practice, huge questions. Yeah. And we really need, I suppose, coming back to what Jennifer is saying about the confusion that reigns. Yeah. We need bodies like that yeah. um, to keep on it and to mediate, I suppose, between yeah. people. And, and, and with the em- Emma D'Souza case, which I think is, you know, what was covered you know, greatly in in the UK, I, I'm not uh, <coughs> not not sure so much in, in the Irish media. And I'm just saying, I, I did not, I don't know. Yeah. But the Emma Souza case, you know, has very worrying precedent. So for for the case itself, the brief, brief overview is that she w- has always held an Irish passport nor- from Northern Ireland, and essentially she she wants her American uh, um, husband, husband to have an to Irish have passport in permit. Northern Ireland. But the UK, the Supreme, yeah, I thought that had been done and dusted. Yeah, but the UK Supreme Court just ruled that she is essentially British. British, And what that revealed and why that's not important not just for her and she says an identity is being imposed upon me that I do not wish which directly contravenes the Good Friday Agreement. What that revealed was that the Good and I didn't know this, you know, shame on me, but the Good Friday Agreement was not actually ratified in domestic law in the United Kingdom. Only parts of it. Unlike in in the Republic of Ireland where it's ratified. So the implications for that in a pro-Brexit environment for the citizens of Northern Ireland is very, very worrying that it has not been ratified in full in domestic law. And I I suppose we we look at to see what benefits of or what upsides to Brexit there are. And I think if any Fine Gaelor was looking at the poll this morning in the Business Post, they say that there is a Brexit bounce or has been a Brexit bounce for Leo Varadkar. They now hold an eight-point gap over Fianna Fáil. And should Brexit get sorted tomorrow and should that general election, the questions of a November election are very much back on the agenda. Can you imagine people knocking on people's doors at seven, eight, nine o'clock in the lashings of rain in the pitch black. I'm sure we'll be out with them, so I'm not looking forward to myself. <laughs> like so. but, well, I don't know if you carry uh, any, any influence on that. I was listening. That, that, that poll was done between Thursday and Thursday. Yeah. And Thursday was the day that he went over to meet Boris Johnson. Mm. When I think nobody thought he was going to come back with anything, really, and that it was very odd, because up until then, he'd been saying, no, Europe negotiates for us, Europe negotiates mm. for us, <clears throat> you're not breaking us up. But on this one, so presumably there was backroom tic-tacking between him and Barnier room. and all of, of that. Yeah. 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 And I think what's been remarkably is, this, is that that level of engagement behind the scenes between Dublin and Brussels, and, like... I don't think, I mean, for two and a half to three years, we've heard this constantly, the Barnier, 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 yeah. the task force will do any sort of negotiations. Which was, which was fairly sensible, wasn't it? Was, it, it was, yeah. because I think the Brits from the get-go were trying to pick us off in a sort of a bilateral arrangement. Yeah. But I think what was clear is that the Boris and Leo 
um, walked out of the room and left their advisors and they went for a little stroll themselves. And it's often it happens that one on one, you know, movement by, yeah. by leaders can happen in those crucial sort of. Um, but it wouldn't have been a solo run, Marianne. It wouldn't have been a solo run. No. No. By no. him. By him. Yeah. No, no, no. that's all. But do they not exchange papers and all that? Like you don't go in the door and say, oh, I no, gather no. two women had a row no, at this often, hotel. Uh, and by the way. Yeah, but often I think what you have are various scenarios that are proposed and it's up to the leader to ultimately make a judgment call and no one but the leader can make that judgment call. And how didn't that slip out beforehand? Well, well there, there would have been red lines or in, in, in diplomacy... There's public. There's such thing as public red lines, and of course, our public red line, Ireland, north south. Yeah, would have been a hard border, um, on 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 the on a land on hard, a land hard border. Yeah. So, that, but there are such things as what you know, perceptive red lines. So they're immovable, but the other side mightn't know that. But it's certain while face to face diplomacy, and we saw it was actually deemed. There was, it was answered by the leaders. One, it was the breakthrough, right? Yeah. Face to face diplomacy. We've seen it in the Cold War numerous times. Works, you know. Has has made seismic shifts mm. in, in diplomatic um, impasses, but certainly well, I mean, the really E would have been behind Radker it as well. Was asking Johnson to do what? Well, I'm sure this was not his language, mm. but essentially was asking him to do was ditch the DUP. Exactly, and that's what and that's what happened. And when we saw. Um, That's a worrying aspect of the thing, mm, a yeah. very worrying aspect. Mm. I think Noel Dorr was writing about it there yesterday as well, uh, particularly the issue of consent. Yeah. Because up but I was listening to Marty Hearn recently and he was defining consent as he interpreted it from the Good Friday Agreement and he knows his way around it as well. And he was saying that it was in the big issue it's of... It's called devolved issues. Yes. Yeah. In other words, yeah. things to do, you know, the policies about health or politics or United Ireland, yeah. of those things. But this is about customs union and taxation. Which is not doesn't really come under those. Yeah. yeah. So that uh, while while Bertie, of course, is right. That's the point I'm making. Yeah. That there's there's a, it, it, it consent where <laughs> there has to be a majority of both both communities, nationalist and unionist. In this case, <laughs> that doesn't apply, and therefore what what Varadkar and the EU have uh, landed and agreed to is that it's just a majority. Yeah, I see. That's that's really what Arlene Foster mm. is saying in the papers today and elsewhere. Yeah, but she wished for a veto, she, which is yeah, completely yeah. against. She consent. wants a veto. Well, you see, within the trappings of the actual institutions, yeah. if they were, I mean, you can express a concern, which is which is kind essentially of like the, a veto. Yeah, 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 and, and that that is what uh, they're interchangeable work yeah. and in in the media that they were being used as a veto. And I just think a veto from any, be it the DUP or Sinn Féin, anyone holding the power of a veto, it doesn't matter whether no. you're for for the EU or against it, mm. I just think power consolidated in the hands of any party goes directly against the Good Friday right. Agreement. I, I, th I think the deal with uh, Boris um, probably signals by the Irish government and, and the EU that Brexit is actually going to happen. Um, mm. Whereas previously, they probably hoped that it wouldn't happen, it could oh, be yeah. reversed, um, that Remain might win the day. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there was probably also a realisation on uh, Leo's part that uh, Boris is the kind of fellow you can do a deal with certainly behind closed doors he might say one thing in public well he obviously did to, to, to the DUP he'll actually do a different thing behind closed doors yeah. and he will cut a deal and I think Owen Harris makes a very good point in his column today it, you know he kind of writes an open letter to the DUP yes I read that and you kind of you have a choice save your union or ditch Brexit and you can have one or the other but not both and I think it's a very good question to ask yeah because you can't like 
a lot I think a lot of the, the, the game playing of the last two, two and a half years was to satisfy the DUP. I mean I, I still have visions of Theresa May being pulled out of that meeting with, with Tusk and Juncker where she basically had a cold phone call from Arlene Foster saying we can't go along with this yeah. and everything had to stop. Yeah. So I think once if they're either sidelined or, or marginalised or whatever, I think ultimately this, this issue but can the be the DUP will have to succumb, I think, to Johnson's version of the union, which I think is important. That yeah. what what this has shown well, is that there they have two different versions. Status. Yeah, there is two versions of the of yeah. the union. So Johnson is saying that he still is abiding by yeah. the union and you know he hasn't sold out the DUP, but the DUP are saying they don't feel yeah. that because her sentiment and Martin McGuinness wrote a letter at the very, very outset yeah. to say that um, Northern Ireland was in a unique position. Yeah. And then people re- retracted on that. It is in a unique yeah. position. Mm. Now, I, I presume if you think your identity is going to be watered down and your identity is British, yeah. you'll fight like the devil yeah. to hang on but, to But the union identity. isn't just about Northern Ireland, it's also about Scotland as well. And oh, yeah. Uh, Scotland's uh, position now is going to be very interesting mm-hmm. to see how this plays out going forward because okay. clearly Nicola Sturgeon wants an independence referendum yeah. and Boris doesn't want to give it to her. Uh, last question just before we leave this. Mm. Uh, Burko is coming in mm-hmm. for a lot of criticism. He does a lot of grandstanding, yeah, doesn't he? He does, but I'm a little. I am a fan of the theatre, but that's just a personal view. Politically, I do agree yeah. that it's you know there's there is particularly when he was reading out whether uh, the bill would be allowed to be voted on or not. It was in English. I just couldn't even understand. I was like, yeah. "What is he saying?" Yeah. You know, get get to the point. I don't I yeah. don't know what he's saying, but it doesn't surprise me that you know. Of course, this is Johnson's paper, The Telegraph. Yeah. This is the front. Um, this is the front news, and certainly because we know he's retiring, or you yeah. know, l- leaving. That you know, he has no one to impress, and yeah. and whether that's democratic. I don't think it it is democratic or not, and, and you know, using a law from what was it, fourteen. The 14th century, yeah. in order to there you go. grandstanding, yeah, certainly. Okay. But personally, I do like a little bit of theatre. You like the theatre? <laughs> That's yeah. a personal just view. a little less. It's a bit playing to the cameras, I yeah. have to agree. Okay, listen, we'll take a break back after this. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie/slash radio.